Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, I am Aaron McFarling, the sports columnist of the Roanoke Times. We got a little bit of a poo-poo platter for you today. Uh, more football than than maybe we anticipated when we sat down to kind of plan this out. But we'll get into a lot of football issues. Uh, Andy had an opportunity to meet with Fuente this week. Uh, he also attended a 5 a.m. workout. We'll get some details on on what that was like. Uh, the Hokies that are invited to the combine, the uh, what F F C I F P I F P I wrote F B I. Um, it must have been a mental tick. Secretive rankings. Um, big moments in Hokie history. We'll touch on that, and um, and we'll get into Witt's contract, Witt Babcock's contract, because we I wrote about some that this week. I want to get Andy's take on that whole issue. Uh, we'll also touch on Kevin Dresser leaving the wrestling program, and a little bit of basketball at the end. So full slate here. This is a smorgasbord of Virginia Tech. Uh, talk here. It really is, and I want to start by congratulating you la- on last week's podcast with with Shane Graham. I thought it was it was excellent. Uh, Shane is a very good interview subject, uh, and you, but you did a really nice job of leading him places that I I wasn't aware of. Uh, did you enjoy that uh, hooking up with him and, and doing one with him? Yeah, it was incredibly easy because I would just ask a. 10 second question and then he would talk for four minutes and then it would give me plenty of time to formulate my next question. And he had a lot of really good answers, uh, across the, the entire podcast. I was, you know, a lot of insight about what it's life like being in the NFL and, uh, you know, life being a kicker where you're kind of, you know, job to job and day to day. And, uh, you don't really have that same sense of community like you did at Virginia tech and being on a team. So I enjoyed it. Uh, maybe uh, something I can do in the future with other guys as well. Yeah, it was good. If if you're a listener out there and you haven't had an opportunity yet to to go back and check that out, I think you will enjoy it. Uh, if you're a fan of Hokie history, if you're a fan of local local athletes who've who've done good, so to speak, uh, he's one of them. So let's talk about your meeting with Justin Fuente. I mean, you and Mike Barber from the Richmond Times Dispatch got a chance to sit down and sort of talk, you know, hot stove uh, with him. What what did you glean out of that uh, that meeting? Well, I, not a lot of specifics. You know, he's not the kind of coach in the offseason that's going to be like, these guys are hurt, these guys are switching positions. Uh, certainly not a month out from spring ball when all that stuff can still kind of change. So I uh, didn't necessarily think I'd get a full rundown of the roster and things like that. But he, he sort of talked a little bit big picture about, uh, you know, year two in the program and how it's a little bit easier from the sense that everybody understands the expectations. Uh, they understand uh, what he's aiming to do. Whereas last year it was still installing offenses and, and things like that. So from that standpoint, I think it helps the Hokies quite a bit uh, in this off season. Uh, obviously there's the huge challenge of replacing all the guys that they did on offense. I asked him, uh, you know, in his career, has he had a time like that where, uh, he's lost that much production from an offense they had the previous year. And he said, yeah, TCU after the, the 2010 season, uh, the Rose Bowl win, perfect season, uh, beat Wisconsin to cap things off. I think they finished number two in the country. Uh, that was Andy Dalton's last year. He was a four-year starter. They lost some receivers, so, some offensive linemen. So uh, that was a real sort of overhaul on that offense or a, a, kind of a reloading situation. Uh, didn't necessarily drop off the face of the earth the next year. They still averaged 40.4 points a game, uh, 440 yards. I know they played in the Mountain West at that point, I think it was. 
Uh, so it's not like they were going up against you know premier competition like TCU does now in the Big 12. Although I think some other power conferences would question whether the Big 12 is premier competition. But uh, the point is he's been through something like this before. So while a lot of Hokies fans are looking at this uh, offseason where, where Virginia Tech loses Gerard Evans and Isaiah Ford and Bucky Hodges, that is daunting. But uh, I think uh, Fuente's history has shown that he's been able to sort of uh, keep things held together and put a pretty good product on the field nonetheless. Yeah, he set a very high standard for himself and for this program moving forward. And I think there's a level of trust at this point uh, until we see some significant struggles that uh, I think he's sort of earned uh, going into this season, although there are, as you mentioned, a, a ton of challenges they've got. I, we may have had some breaking news this morning. I don't know. I saw this VT football tweet, at uh, VT underscore football. Uh, the, it, it pictures Wyatt Teller wearing a shirt saying, whatever it takes. Perhaps that is the motto this year instead of 1-0? Uh, and oh? Well, I did write that down at my uh... – I went to one of their early morning workouts today. I noticed who had the T-shirts. That was the uh, the maroon T-shirt that Wyatt's wearing. Uh, there are probably 12 or 13 guys on the team that had those. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all started in white T-shirts on Monday, and the guys who were standouts in that first workout got to wear the maroon shirts, mm-hmm. or red shirts uh, is what Fuente kept calling them during the practice. And he said, as soon as everybody has those, then we're going to stop doing these morning conditioning things. We'll move on to something else. Wow. Uh, so, but you can lose those shirts if you don't have a productive workout. So, uh, it was kind of interesting going to that workout because, uh, a, it's incredibly early. B, it's incredibly arduous. They call it their Colorado drills. Uh, I think if you see players on Twitter, if you follow a bunch of them, will reference that. I think Jonathan McLaughlin was, uh, sort of razzing the the guys that are still there, saying, "Uh, where are you going on vacation tomorrow? Is it Colorado? Something like that." Like I, I'm sure these guys that don't have to do this anymore take great glee in the fact that uh, they can make fun of the guys that have to go through this. But it's basically six stations around the indoor facility, just conditioning drills. They rotate through them. It takes about 40 minutes. At the end of it, they do these line drills, sort of a shuttle where the entire team goes in three waves. Uh, they have to get two perfect reps. Uh, for the entire team, uh, if and, and all the coaches are sitting there watching it. So if anybody sort of slacks off on a certain rep, it doesn't count. Okay. So it's not like they need two in a row or they just need two perfect reps where everybody is going full speed. Uh, it took them ten times today to do it, which I thought was a lot. And then Fuente told me it took them 14 times on Monday. So uh, they are certainly running these guys ragged at these uh, conditioning things. It, it'll be kind of interesting. i got to write the story still probably around this weekend or, or later on here, but it was an interesting glimpse at kind of what they do in the off season and, and kind of the hard work they put in there. How alert did those guys look out there at that early Quite, hour? Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. Like, you know, I'm, it, it used to be a major deal for me to wake up that early. And now with a one-year-old, it just happened. Like I'm just up a lot right. you know, last night. She's teething. So I was up at like one thirty or something like that. 4am wake up calls are not unusual. So, uh, a little bit easier for me, and, and certainly the coaching staff are early risers, and, and they do that sort of thing. But for a college student, I can imagine it being very difficult. Uh, I don't remember ever waking up that early when I was a college student. Uh, and talking to Fuente, that's sort of part of the point, is it requires you to be focused and to, to have a purpose when you wake up at that time. It also forces you to go to bed at a reasonable time. Uh, I think talking to the strength coach, Ben Hilgert, Today, he was saying, you know, if you go to bed and there's a four on the clock uh, leading it off, you're not going to bed early enough. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that's sort of part of it. But 
Uh, I think throughout the whole thing, what they sort of preached was uh, enthusiasm and you know, clapping and you know, getting up for these things. And it's a tough thing to do, especially when you have to do them for 40 minutes to an hour. But uh, it was pretty enthusiastic, I would say, from the time I was out there. Yeah, we did those in the offseason at Maryland for baseball, and it wasn't as early as that. I think it was like 6. But you had to do them before those 8 a.m. classes begin because everyone had 8 a.m. classes. And I just remember showing up there just feeling dead. But when you're done, like, you know, you're really ready to attack the day. Oh, yeah. Know, like I'm sure like you have energy. Yeah, you've accomplished something. And I think that, that the football players are certainly getting that sense as well like once they shower up and 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 attack their day they feel like they've they've done something positive in their football as well so i think there's a lot of benefit to those Uh, they're not fun but i think there's a lot of benefit to them uh speaking of workouts i mean you got six hokies invited to the the nfl combine that is a big number is do you have any reference point as as how that compares to other years or you know since i've been here i don't think they've had that many um i think there was four one year I think the year when they had Exum and Gale and those guys, I can't remember if that was the same year as Logan Thomas maybe was, maybe. I can't remember exactly. I'd have to go back and check. It's been a while, I think, since they've had six, though, if they have had six. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty big number. I I think the four that you expected, you know, Evans was certainly going to be there, uh, uh, Isaiah Ford, Bucky Hodges. You know, Chuck Clark was somebody maybe I didn't think originally that might have been there, but it sounds like he's pretty well regarded uh, as a prospect, and that that makes sense with Virginia Tech's history uh, as a defensive back school. Uh, Sam Rogers, I think, is one of the top fullbacks, so that makes sense that he would go there, even if, uh, you know, it's sort of a a disappearing position in the NFL, Uh, maybe not as much prominence uh, at that position as had in the past. Uh, and then Kenneth Canem, maybe a little surprised he got there too, because I'm not sure exactly where he falls in the whole draft process if if he'll get in there. But uh, you know, good for all of them to get there, and it, it's a big opportunity. Even even you know the workout stuff, that's what everybody sees, but it's really a lot of it is sitting down and talking with GMs and coaches and scouts, and they get a sense of your personality and your you know just what you're all about. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a major part. I, I think a lot of times people get hung up on what these guys run in a forty, but uh, they want to see what you're like, uh, sort of what your makeup is, and a lot of times that's more important than what you do on the field. There. Yeah, I have a sense that, that all those guys you mentioned will do very well <laughs> at that aspect of it. it. As far as you know, everyone's accepted the invitation. They're going to do it? Yeah, or, okay. yeah, I, I believe so. I, I think the one that will be very interesting is Evans because you know, he hasn't really talked about it publicly, his decision to go pro. I think a lot of people said ah, he would have been better off with a year uh, coming back, uh, obviously, I'm going to try to circle back and see if I can talk to him before the the uh, the combine. He, he didn't feel like talking about it, or he wanted to postpone talking about it earlier when I tried right after he declared. So, uh, you know, you go to a thing like this. There's media swarming all over the place. You talk to the press. Uh, it's going to be a situation where I think he'll have to anyway when he's up there. So uh, I'll try to, to talk to him before he actually goes up there. But I'm sure. Uh, some video will be posted of him talking to the media when he's up there. Have you considered at all going to Indy? I mean, it sounds uh, like this might actually be a year that would be worthwhile. Maybe, you know, you don't get to see the workouts. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch those on TV like other people. Uh, you know, I got phone numbers for these guys. Like, I could call them from here. Right. Uh, another part of it is my daughter turns two or turns one year old on March 2nd. Okay. Uh, so I am not going to miss that no, no. <laughs> to go cover this thing up in uh, in Indianapolis. I, I I know people that have gone up there, and 
a lot of the the guys at Auburn and Alabama, uh, the papers down there, they usually will send somebody up there and then they'll cover it for both schools. So with those schools, you'll get like 12 guys that you're covering and something like that. So maybe it'd be worth it. I, I've considered it a couple times, but I just I always kind of default to the it's probably not worth going. Yeah, well, you I mean you, you, these days you can follow so much of it on on TV and online and oh yeah, yeah whatever whatever interview they do somebody will probably youtube it yeah and it'll be up there okay all right well let's move on to this fpi ranking because i don't even know what that is fbi <laughs> fpi it's I football power index i think is what they... inspector ranking i you, so you uh you explained this on your blog i i have to admit this is one of the few blog posts you've written that i did not click on uh, i think the acronym just drove me away i didn't want to read about fpi but what is fpi and where are the hookies in the fpi ranking well it's it's one of these you know mathematical formulas that they put in to try to to project how a team's strength will be the following season it's not necessarily trying to predict how they'll do nerds yes exactly it's, it's, it's the nerd it's kind of like you know, Bill Connolly, S&P rankings on, okay. on SB Nation. It's similar to that. They have their own uh, ranking sister mathematical formula that they do that takes into account, you know, offensive production the last couple – four years, I think. Uh, returning guys, I think they factor in recruiting. To the, I, I can't remember all the things that go into the pot for this uh, this ranking, but they throw it together. They come up with a number. They rank the teams. That's essentially what it is. Uh, Virginia Tech was 31st which puts them in the coastal second uh, Miami. They have 16th, which I'm sure a lot of Hokies fans are going to roll their eyes at the, you know, Miami is back mm-hmm. off season mantra that seems to happen every single year. And then you know, Miami's never won the coastal the entire time. So that I, was, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that was one of my best tweets of last season when tech was playing Miami and winning. I said, Miami is back dot 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 ing out of the coastal division race in a hurry man i missed that one yeah yeah sometimes in the the rush of the games you miss those tweets it actually got the love i hoped it would that's good it was retweeted often and uh got the love you hope three likes (laughs) thank you very much that's all i need need. (laughs) if someone gives me a mercy mercy favorite i'm happy i'm sorry so go back to what you were saying uh well miami uh they this formula picks at the top team in the coastal, but Virginia Tech's right there, and, and you see it's sort of a muddled group. I mean, Georgia Tech, Duke, uh, Pittsburgh, North Carolina—all these teams are sort of in there in the you know 30s and 40s. So I think it's a year where the coastal division probably is going to be up for grabs again for anybody that wants to take it. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the Miami uh, is you know head and shoulders above the group. I don't know if that's what this is saying, but they're certainly putting it first in the coastal. Uh, you know, obviously questions about how you pr- replace Brad Kaya, but it's also the fact that you know Miami has just, whenever it's been thought of to be the team at the top of the coastal, it hasn't performed that way. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm I'm kind of in a position where I'm like, you know, I have to see it before I believe it with Miami that they're back. Mm-hmm. Um, Go ahead. And the other part of the rankings is, you know, Virginia Tech's 31st. I think last year they were 25th or 40th, something like that. So they obviously outperformed what they were expected last year. Uh, the other thing on this is NC State is 22nd, which I don't quite know how they would have that. I mean, I, I think NC State has a good deal coming back, but I'm a little skeptical of that ranking as well. This nerd ranking makes me think a little bit, though, because, like, you don't see it – you see it more and more in basketball now. Of course, baseball has been around forever, and it just keeps uh, expanding and expanding. But it doesn't seem like football, maybe just because it doesn't lend itself as, as much as a sport – but it doesn't seem like you have as many as advanced metrics in football. 
that, that are at least thrown around a lot and people actually uh, follow and care about. Would you say that's accurate? Or well, I, I think it's tougher to do it in football because it's so related to how the team performs and how you, know, you perform within the system. I mean, baseball is basically a series of one-on-one matchups. Right. And that's why it lends itself so much to that is it's – well, this is the match, a pitcher versus a hitter. I mean, there's not really a lot of outside forces that come into that thing. Uh, in football, it's like, well, how good is this running back? Well, how good is his offensive line? How good is his passing game? How good is the defense that he's facing? There's a lot more variables that I think you have to factor into that. Uh, in this specific one, yeah, I have a little bit of questions how accurate it would be with the Hokies anyway, because they say they take into four years of you know factors obviously the most recent year is the most important but it still factors in four years of performance so logan thomas's senior season scott leffler's first season as offensive coordinator where they were ranked 100th in the country or something like that offensively didn't have a whole lot of offensive pieces i mean trey edmonds was the running back as a redshirt freshman then willie byrne was the top receiver this is factored into how Virginia Tech will fare next year in, in some way. I, I'm not saying that's a huge weighted portion of this ranking. I'm just saying that that is factored in somehow. I feel like that has nothing to do with the current team, the current situation of that. And obviously the coaching change has uh, uh, something to do with that. If it was still the same staff from then, I could see a little bit more relation there. But I, I think there's uh, some you know picking at this uh, formula that you have that yeah, maybe it's not quite as accurate with a team like Virginia Tech that had the coaching change and a new offensive system and a new philosophy on that side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of kidding with the nerd comments because... You are not! I, no, I actually... You really are against do. the nerd I, revolution. I don't, you know, I don't... I mean, I love baseball. I don't really get into all those extra numbers, but I, I'm glad they're there. And I like them I like them when they show me something I didn't know. Um and I really enjoy the analytics issue that the ESPN magazine puts out every year. Uh, it's fascinating how you know GMs in different sports are looking at different metrics to decide how to build their teams. I think the more information, the better. The more rankings, the better, specifically this time of year where there's not as much exactly. to, to, to talk about. But uh, And then to that point, I guess, is you, you threw out one of those questions that I think uh, is good for this time of year on your blog this week. Just asking people, you know, actually, you you did your own analysis and broke down what you thought were maybe the top five most impactful moments in Virginia Tech history, sort of dovetailing off your Shane Graham conversation uh, from last week. And um, tell us what you chose, and then maybe tell us some th- some of the feedback you got on your choices. Well, this was a mailbag question, uh, Lucas. I, I forget. I don't think he had his last name on the email that he sent. He sent the question in. Uh, thinking about most impactful plays in Virginia Tech history. And, you know, certainly when I look at this, I sort of looked at ones that uh, perhaps affected the trajectory of the program in the future. I I don't want to just be like, oh, they would have won this game if this guy made this play. I was looking at plays that if this had gone a different way, would the program have been the same in the years that followed? Uh, And obviously – one of the top ones that uh, Lucas suggested was uh, the Druckenmiller pass. I think it was 95 mm-hmm. against Virginia. Touchdown late in the game. And then obviously they get the pick six where the UVA trainer tried to trip the guy coming down the sideline to end it. Uh, but the touchdown pass, uh, it didn't necessarily clinch the Sugar Bowl, but it certainly helped them get that Sugar Bowl bid. And then you look at what the Sugar Bowl did uh, that season, beating Texas uh, for the program and kind of putting it on the map. You can look at that as 
what would have happened for to the Hokies if that touchdown had not had happened. So uh, that was one of them. I had the uh, the blocked field goal in the Independence Bowl against Indiana in 1993. Maybe that one was a stretch because you know they they probably still would have won that game anyway. That was sort of a tide turner in that thing, and it seemed like it kind of jump started the whole postseason run that Virginia Tech had. Uh, Brian Stills punt return in that Sugar Bowl in 1995 against Texas. Virginia Tech was down 10 to nothing. Uh, that that got them going. They ended up winning 28 to 10. Uh, you need some sort of spark in a game like that. And obviously, we've talked about the the critical importance of that game in the program's history. Uh, getting back to that West Virginia win in 1999, I, I know the Shane Graham kick is the one that won it, but uh, the Michael Vick run, sort of tightrope up the sideline, got them in position to even have that kick. Uh, I think that's sort of one of the signature moments that people remember from Michael Vick when he was here. And then the two later ones that I had in the 2000s are probably not ones that uh, uh, Virginia Tech fans like to think about much. But one was the punt return that Peter Warwick had in the BCS title game. Uh, again, that's a little weird. I mean, it made it 28-7. to It was just such a large hole that I know Virginia Tech came back and was leading 29-28 at the end of the third quarter. But uh, it seemed like they had expended so much energy to, to pull out of that early hole that that was – and then to happen you know, on special teams, sort of the calling card of Virginia Tech. I think that was uh, kind of a double whammy there. And then uh, the Matt Ryan pass in 2007 I think was uh, – you look at where they finish in the rankings, and I don't know if they could have leapt – uh, leaped, leaped, leapt. I think either is successful. I don't know if they could have jumped LSU at the end of the, the BCS rankings because LSU had beat them so bad, but certainly you take a loss off of there and you look at where you finish number three in the BCS rankings to give that game away at the end of the season and lose it on that heartbreaking thing. I, I think I, you know, I put this up there to pe- a lot of people are like, Oh, you just ruined my day by putting that up there. It's like, <laughs> and now you mentioned it yeah, again. I'm sorry if I've ruined your day on this podcast too, but you know, that is a, an influential play and an impactful play in Virginia tech history, unfortunately no, to say. No doubt. Yeah. I, I chimed in on your blog, and in the comments section, I wrote one that I thought was a pretty big deal. It metaphorically led to the death of a man, My one of my predecessors here at the Roanoke Times, Bill Brill, who had, had said that uh, Virginia Tech would never win a ACC title in any sport in his lifetime. And, of course, Virginia Tech was in position in its very first year in 2004 to do that in the most prestigious sport that they play in football. And... Uh, it was tied 10-10, and I was there. I remember. I mean, the defense won that game, of course, but the play that uh, that gave Tech the lead and ultimately the victory was a touchdown pass from Brian Randall to Eddie Royal. Uh, that uh, you know they missed the extra point, but it was 16-10, and you know, to win the ACC and just I mean they've won Big East titles. It's not like they had never won conference titles, but to win the ACC in your first year in the league, I think really set a strong course for the future as well. Yeah, there were a lot of good ones that people wrote in with. Uh, I think one was uh, the block punt that they gave up to ECU in uh, 2008. I think it was to yeah. lose that game in Charlotte. Uh, they burned they burned the red shirt on Tyrod. I think the next game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was a panic move or whatever it was, but obviously if you you red shirt Tyrod that year, you have him in 2011. And think about what that team could have been like in 2000, how good they were in 2011 anyway, but they had Tyrod on top of that. So th- there were a lot of th- those type things where it's like not obvious uh, how big the play was. I think a lot of people uh, said that Danny Cole catch non-catch at the end of the Sugar Bowl. I didn't really classify that in this uh, category because 
if he if the catch is upheld, they win the Sugar Bowl. Right. Like, yeah, it's a nice accomplishment, but I don't think feel like that would have affected the program going forward very much. It's not like they fell apart because they lost that game. Uh, you know, the recruiting misses and uh, the offense not being updated. I mean, that was stuff that was going to catch up to Virginia Tech anyway. So I don't feel like that catch non catch. Uh, altered the course of history well, after that. And we were talking off air. I mean, I thought, you know, the fact that they won that Orange Bowl against Cincinnati, uh, that took a lot of the pressure off them because, that you know, up until that point, they had not won a BCS-level bowl since 95. Right. And so they, there wasn't that albatross of you can't win a big, you know, a big bowl, Frank, even though Cincinnati was not a great – entrant i don't think into into the orange bowl but people were saying back then that maybe the Hokies weren't a great entrant into the sugar bowl so uh it it didn't you know it didn't have that gravitas i guess that maybe it would have had they not won won that orange bowl but yeah going back you you also thought of another one that you you know had kind of occurred to you the the boise state uh play tell tell us about yeah the very i mean you you think about that what if they don't give up that touchdown pass i I forget the exact down distance i don't know if boise state would have had more opportunities to score the touchdown but obviously the touchdown at the end of the game they lose that one they're so just devastated from that monday night loss and that was you know that was two top 10 teams playing each other if i remember right uh lose to jmu the next week uh you know they ran the table after that the regular season uh that's pretty impressive to come back and do that so i mean if they win that, I don't think they lose that JMU game. I don't think they're just emotionally devastated in that and they come out flat like they did. Uh, I mean, that could have been an incredible season from a national perspective if they win that game initially. It, you know, it, it basically boils down to a lot of what-ifs, yeah. and which is an easy game to play. It's like, oh, what if they won this game that would have been huge for them? Well, obviously they would have had a better season, but – uh, in the off season, it's an interesting thing to go back and look at. I would say. Yeah, I think it's a, that's a good that's a good one. Going back to your 2008 uh, ECU game example, I think they probably still would have burned the shirt anyway because the shirt was burned the next week at LSU where they were just flat out embarrassed, and it was a panic move, but it was a move that well, that was the, that was the his freshman year. Oh, okay. This was my, the, this was my years mixed up. I here. think. That, <laughs> Yeah, somebody will probably correct us on this thing. I thought that was the following year when they again tried to redshirt him. Okay. Maybe maybe I'm incorrect on that. I don't know. All right. Well, anyway. I'm sure if we're wrong, people will send us many angry tweets and say, what's wrong with you idiots? I remember I was not at that that 2008 uh, ECU game. And, you know, normally I'm at every hockey game of consequence. But I remember that we, we just thought, you know, it was before ECU had really beaten up on Tech a couple times and, and, and made games close. And, and so, you know, really wasn't, we really weren't thinking that that was a, a, a losable game for them. And so I went and covered Virginia. I can't remember who they were playing. Uh, somebody, somebody big, I think, at USC. USC. It was USC. That was the last uh, Virginia game I covered when I was in Lynchburg. Yeah. They, they lost I mean, 52 to 10, I yeah. think it was. I mean, it was like I was really kicking myself for not having been in a, at a competitive game that really kind of set the course for the season as opposed to going to a, you know, a game where, you, yeah, you did see the number one team in the land, but uh, it just wasn't interesting at all. You know, it was just a, a butt whooping. So live and learn a lot of what ifs, like you said, what ifs. All right, let's, let's get into this um, with Babcock stuff because you, you, you did a uh, FOIA, I guess, request the freedom of information act back when, uh, what, what was it signed in December? Uh, it was announced November 1st. Okay, November. It actually went into effect September 15th. 
in, in there was an agreement that you know was in effect and then was officially signed December eighth with Babcock's contract extension through twenty twenty four. Uh, did not get sent <laughs> the contract or whatever. I don't know if it just got forgotten at Virginia Tech, the request. I know there's been some shuffling around in that office. So I thought about it last week, re-requested it, and they sent it to me, and so I got the details of it. What stood out to you about those details? I, I think it's an impressive investment that Virginia Tech put in. I mean, he's basically a million-dollar athletic director, which I think may be less unusual than it used to be. Obviously, you look at his contemporaries in the ACC, and it's he's up there. He's not the highest paid guy in the ACC, and if you want to count Notre Dame in that, I think he Swarbrick makes one point three million. Mm-hmm. David Teal had a thing where he had got some tax returns from other schools, or had seen what other people reported from the tax returns, and, and it kind of laid out what it was uh, relative to other ACC schools. Uh, so he, he's pretty well compensated within the ACC. Uh, I would say the vast majority of Hokies fans consider that money well spent. Uh, when you look at what he's done with the program in terms of uh, obviously handled the Beamer transition as well as you could have, bringing in Fuente and they're back in the ACC title game, uh, fixing basketball by hiring Buzz Williams. I mean, basketball was a pit when mm-hmm. he came in here, uh, turned that around. And I think there's high hopes for Kenny Brooks, women's basketball. Uh, you look at some of the, the – the stuff they've done with the Hokie Club and the sort of ambitious goals they have with that and fundraising and uh, construction projects. I, th- I think just all around he would get high marks for how he's done. So uh, in that sense, I think a raise of – I think it was about $300,000 a year uh, from what he was making previously. I think a lot of Virginia Tech fans would say that's absolutely worth the money. Yeah, we both uh, – I think we both agree he's a superstar in this business. He's he's paid commensurate with his performance and so thus far has been – his performance has been pretty unassailable uh, as the athletic director and it's just sort of the climate that, that we're in here that the money is so large. I ended up writing something uh, last week about the bonuses because it was just almost like a – I mean it's not like I don't know that, that he's there to win games. It's not that I don't know that success on the field is and, and court is what he's there to to provide them, but to see the individual bonuses, uh, you know, twenty five thousand dollars for making a bowl game goes to wit. Um, what is it? Twenty five. More than that. Bowl game was uh, one and a half month salary for a bowl. Wait, yes, okay. which uh, is about eighty thousand dollars on his original contract. That's already gone up. Uh, I mean, that should be basic bare minimum accomplishment of the football team and that that's a pretty excessive bonus just for doing that yeah and and what just it just kind of hammers the point home i think that you know how much money is out there and and how much money is, is not getting funneled at all to, to to the players uh you know it it I, I made the point in there, you know, if you're a wrestler or if you're Seth Allen on the basketball team and, you know, you're and you're the one who hits the shot that, you know, wins the ACC title, let, let's say, and, 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 you know, you you get the prestige, you get the joy, and of course, you, it's it's all great. But, I mean, to get a monetary bonus for that, to me, is, is I don't know. It, we, we've had this discussion before uh, about, and I've come around on the idea of compensating players more than they're compensated now. I used to be on the side that a scholarship is so valuable that it's uh, it's more than enough. But uh, I've come around as I, as I've grown older and I've seen how much money is just in the games. Uh, I'm not really explaining. I mean, if you can go back and read what I wrote, it, I, I've laid it out a little bit more uh, clearly there. But uh, what do you? 
do, what do you think of what I wrote? What do you think of? Uh, you feel free to tell me I'm crazy or stupid or whatever. But uh, when you saw what I wrote, what did you what did you think of what I was writing? Well, I agreed with that. I think I think it caught some unnecessary flack on uh, some of the message boards. You know, tech sideline. You know, I love posting my stuff there. I think they were just a little unfairly critical of what you wrote, and because I think it boils down to two arguments. And one, I don't think anybody has an argument with, is uh, relative to what other athletic directors are getting paid, Whit Badcock should be getting paid what he is. I think we both agree with that. That's not the issue here. Uh, the issue is, should athletic directors be getting paid this much? And right. Should they be getting paid bonuses? It's the structure of uh, the NCAA altogether and, and kind of the, the salary structure of these administrators at schools. and. You know, that's where it does seem a little unseemly. It's like, well, if the, the basketball team makes the NCAA tournament, it's a $15,000 bonus, I think, for the athletic director. And it's like, that just seems strange to me. That yeah. seems like an odd thing to reward uh, an individual like that for what a team is accomplishing. And now, like, I realize they set up the hire, and that's an important thing, but uh, these just seem like strange benchmarks to get. There was an academic one on there that if, uh, you know, uh, School-wide or university-wide in the athletic department, they have a 960 APR, which is a, a pretty low bar. I think 930 is like a 50% graduation rate. So mm -hmm. 960 is not too much higher than that. That's a $10,000 bonus. That's just, you know, when you look at what the NCAA has uh, in the schools and in the, in the courts have fought so hard with, with these player cost of attendance, uh, you know, oh, this is a major, uh, you know, budgetary item that they have for all these players. Uh, Virginia Tech, I think, is like thirty-five hundred a year yeah. per athlete, and then you see an athletic director can get a bonus of eighty thousand dollars for the the you know, football team making a bowl game. Which in, in this day and age, you go six and six, you should go six and six or five and seven. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, the bowl games that you can make when there are forty of them out there, uh, it kind of puts the money thing into perspective, and uh, it, it comes back to the fact that I feel like a lot of these schools have more money than they know what to do with. Yeah. And again, not a lot of that is going to the players. I'm not going to sit here and, and whine for the players. For 98% of the uh, athletes in college, this is a great deal. Right. Uh, free education, free everything that, that's going on there. Uh, but it, the fact that it's still sort of restricting, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, what these players could make if it was a fair market. You, know, you always see people, it's, oh, it's a free market. That, that's why, uh, you know, athletic directors make this much. You know, they're, they're worth that much uh, relative to the kind of money in the programs. Like, well, the players don't also get that same free market benefit. You, they don't get to argue. It's like, well, I'm, I'm pretty valuable to the school. I'm, I'm a star quarterback or something like that. I'm, I'm, Gerard Evans is an example. Uh, it's probably worth more than the scholarship mm -hmm. at Virginia Tech, but it's capped. And they don't allow anything more than that. And that's sort of the NCAA setup. That, that's that's the problem with the NCAA as a whole and something that's why it's going to the courts and why it's coming to a head is because there's just so much money in college athletics right now that I don't feel like they know what to do with it. And, and I think you look at some of, you know, they're pouring money into these athletic facilities like you know, Clemson's got a, a mini putt course and a slide and all this. It's like – how can you, with a straight face, keep saying it's like, well, these these athletic departments aren't making money off of this stuff? It's like you are. You're just spending it on ridiculously extravagant yeah. things like that. So that's where the argument comes into this. I, I don't think it's anybody saying that you know, relative to other athletic directors, uh, Wit wouldn't deserve that. But I think it just sort of comes into focus specifically with this contract when it came out. It's like there's a lot of money in athletics, and I feel like they're spending it on 
administrators and coaches and, and not a lot of it is going to the, you know, workers or players in this whole yeah, ordeal. Yeah, layers upon layers of staff. I mean, you, you, in addition to the facilities, and I think, you know, I tried to make it clear in that call, this is nothing personal against Witt. And, and again, it's it's not saying his performance has been poor. This is a, it, a nationwide this is, issue. This is, this yeah, is, this is a launching point for a larger discussion, really, is what this is. And it just happened to be that you got the information this week, and it was right there for us to look at. And, I mean, I'm looking at the, the VT Twitter feed again here. I mean, call Tim Settle at 6 p.m. tonight and renew your season tickets. Like, I don't know. It, it, That's another thing that seems a little strange it, to me. It's so like Tim, Tim's going to have to sit in there and take calls. And I mean, I, I it's guess obviously, you want as many people in your stands as you can have, right? I feel like it's a very ornamental position. I don't think he's going to be working the phone banks for a solid week or anything like that. But, again, <laughs> it, it kind of comes back to that. It's like, you know, they're I'm not saying using these guys, but they're having these guys – be sort of pitchmen for selling stuff, selling tickets. Mm-hmm. It's like something that just seems off about that whole thing. And that's this is why this is being legislated and why people are challenging uh, the NCAA setup is because, uh, you know, I don't feel like the players necessarily are represented as well as they should be in this whole thing. Well, just put, let's look at it this way. If you're Tim Settle and they approach you with this request, can you really say no? I mean, are you really? Is it really a scenario where you could just be like, "No, I'm not doing that"? You probably could, but it's probably not that smart for your career, right? I mean, probably not. And you know, for an 18 to 22 year old having the wherewithal to do that and kind of stand up for themselves. I don't think would happen very often. I mean, this is obviously a very submissive position they're in. I mean, they, they're they're a player on a team with a coach, and you never question the coach's authority and the stuff. And uh, I'm not saying that they're forced to do this stuff, but I'm just saying that I could see that setup uh, sort of leading you that direction. Yeah. Well, this is not a wrestling podcast by any stretch of the imagination. Neither, You're not a wrestling expert. N- neither one of us uh, purport to be wrestling experts, really. But I mean, I've I've known Kevin Dresser for a long time, though having covered a lot of high school. Uh, matches back when he was uh, at Christiansburg and winning everything. And, of course, he did it at Grundy before that. Um, obviously, th- this leads us to the news that uh, Kevin Dresser is leaving, going to Iowa State, uh, having you know transformed this this wrestling program from really a, a program that was about to be dropped or, or could they were considering dropping it after the, the Tom Brands fiasco. And Kevin Dresser came in and, and saved it, basically. Not only saved it, but enhanced it. Um, what are your thoughts on, on his departure? You know, it's a tough loss for Virginia Tech because you look at uh, all the sports that they have there, uh, that's probably the one that's closest to a national championship right now. They had the highest finish in the nation last year. They're num- number four last year. It's the highest finish of any ACC school ever in wrestling, and it's, it was the highest finish of any tech team nationally last season. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, <laughs> it's a tough loss, I mean, especially – I mean, he's been sort of an institution in this area for a while, obviously, with what he did at Christiansburg High before he came to Virginia Tech. And he's been here, I think he was here, what, 11 years, something like that? Yeah, uh, that's, th- right. that's a good run. I mean, that's a nice, good run. He had that as one of the premier programs in the ACC. Uh, I was, he's from Iowa, so yeah. that plays into it. Humboldt, Iowa, which I actually just looked up on the map to see what that was. It's actually five miles from Pocahontas, Iowa, which is where my grandparents, my mom is from, Pocahontas, Iowa. So. Hmm. Uh, I didn't realize that's where it was. Uh, his his mom still lives there apparently. Uh, kind of goes back to the uh, you know this is probably one of the factors in it that old Bear Bryant line that you know when Mama calls you come back home. So right. uh, I think there were obviously things like that pulling him that direction. I think it was a nice salary bump he had there as well. 
Uh, I know Iowa State is not uh, has not been good lately, but historically has been one of the wrestling powers uh, in, in college athletics, has some national titles there. So I, I think uh, the draw to return back to a, an opportunity like that, if you're going to do it, I feel like doing it after 11 years at Virginia Tech – uh, perhaps he thought this is maxed out at what he could do at Virginia Tech. I don't know if that's what it was. I haven't talked to him or I know Berman wrote the story on it, but uh, if you're going to make a move to do it after 11 years in one place, maybe it was just felt it was time for a new challenge, new opportunity. Yeah. I don't think it's apples to apples to compare him to Pete Hughes, the former baseball coach who left for Oklahoma, but there are some similarities there. Um, and I, I think you can see, <clears throat> excuse me. I think you can see perhaps a ceiling, now, if you finish fourth in the nation, maybe you maybe you stick around and try to win the whole thing here and and really stamp your your name all over this place. But um, you're right, the combination of being able to go home, the combination of uh, essentially doubling your salary, uh, your base salary, uh, you know, there's going to be thousands of people in, in the stands because that's just the way it is in Iowa. They love their wrestling. He's from there. He knows what it's like. And as I wrote, he, you know, wrestlers are different, man. Wrestlers, the the best wrestlers. I would hire any one of them in an instant because they just they work harder. I mean, it's like the, those 5 a.m. workouts that you were at. They would be there and they would be, you know, ripping through things. I mean, they're just so. I wrote in in a blog this week. You know, I was at the state wrestling championships last weekend, and they have the walk of champions. You know, where they bring back all the former guys. I was looking at, at these guys and they're, they're all like in great shape. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, they're, they're not all ripped. Fat and, <laughs> You know, and of course, you know, I, here I am fat and, you know, I've, I played at, you know, at a pretty high level, but, and, and you see at these basketball, you know, reunions and stuff, a lot of these guys have kind of let themselves go. It just doesn't happen in wrestling. And that's Kevin Dresser's mentality. You know, he's, he's always looking for that next challenge. And, and he's certainly got one in Iowa state with some expectations that are high. And, and so good luck to him. I mean, he did some really good things for Virginia Tech and for the area in general. Yeah, you can't begrudge a guy like that for for leaving for an opportunity like that. You know, we were kind of talking it's like of the non-revenue sports and and the hires that they've had here, he probably has to be at the top or near the top. Uh I mean, what others for, would you put in there just in terms of success? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'd put Pete Hughes in there. Pete Hughes is uh, there. I, I think Dress I think Dresser even <laughs> higher than Pete Hughes what he accomplished. Yes. No doubt, no doubt, um, relative to where they were. I mean, you know, when Pete Hughes came into the baseball program, I mean, Chuck Hartman had had taken the team to the NCAA tournament before. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm doing the coffin this week instead of you. I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they weren't a program that was just moribund, like uh, like the wrestling program was just devastated by Tom Brands leaving and taking all of his wrestlers with him. And uh, so – Anyway, that's enough wrestling talk. Let's let's talk a little basketball because uh, I was telling my editor today, both of our editors, that um, it's very inter- it's a very interesting time to be covering basketball in the state right now because two things are happening: one, Virginia Tech is winning and often in dramatic fashion, and two, Virginia is struggling, which is not something <coughs> excuse me not something we've seen in recent Februarys. Um, you, you juxtapose those two things, and I think they collided at Castle Coliseum in a double overtime victory for Virginia Tech, in which Seth Allen hit a, a last-minute shot, and the and the ball got stuck on the rim in regulation. I mean, you, I'm sure you saw highlights yeah, of that. Yeah, I was watching that thing live. What are your thoughts on Tech basketball right now? They seem to have a knack for pulling these games out. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the Virginia game. 
I mean, Pitt, they were down double digits early. Pitt was hitting everything in sight, and somehow they came back and pulled that one out. Uh, I was covering a high school game last night, so I didn't get to watch that. But I saw they were up late, and then all of a sudden I checked Twitter. Was I was driving back, and they were down 70 to 68 somehow. Yeah. Uh, Seth Allen, who seems to make every shot that he takes in a big situation, hits the three to, to beat them. And, you know, Clemson loses another game that only Clemson seems to know how to lose all the time. Uh, you know, something about this team. I mean, you lose Chris Clark and you go, well, you know, what's this team going to do the rest of the season? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of inside presence. Uh, honestly, I think this almost makes them uh, – I don't know if it makes them better. I don't want to say they're better without Chris Clark, but I feel like it makes them uh, a uniquely dangerous team because they really just have no pretense about chucking up a bunch of threes and yeah. just playing that kind of small ball. And that can be just a real – you know, devastating style of play against some of these teams. Obviously, if the shots aren't falling, that becomes a, a long night. But, I mean, when they are, I mean, they went toe-to-toe with Louisville at Louisville. Not a lot of teams do that. Uh, what was the score that, 94-90? to 90? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it would take a complete and total collapse for them not to make the tournament at this point. I think – Yeah, they got a uh, soft finishing slate. Yeah, uh, what they've done so far in the toughest league in the country by far – uh, I think that puts them in the tournament. I don't know what their seeding would be. I think I've seen some things that say 10 seeds, some to see on that 8-9 line. Uh, who knows exactly how the, the tournament's going to regard them and the ACC. But I think if they get into the tournament, they could be a dangerous team just because they play that style that, you know, when they're they're on, they're a really tough team to, to beat. Well, they're sort of the opposite of Virginia. Virginia is plotting. And, you know, Virginia Tech wants to run. They move up and down the floor. They've got a lot of athletes that – <clears throat> they moved the ball pretty well. Virginia, at one point in the season, was one of the most efficient offensive teams in the country, but they've just kind of fallen off the rails. Their <clears throat> their point guard, their excellent point guard, London Perantes, is in a terrible slump. I wasn't at the game last night, and you, this this coughing I'm doing can serve as my doctor's note because I'm still coming out of that. But that's why I wasn't there last night. But I wrote about Seth Allen today because I did watch the game. And Seth Allen is, you know, leading up to that game-winning shot, he had missed two shots, including a bunny layup, you know, that would have tied the game. But he's still willing to take that shot. And and to me, that's your that's your March lottery ticket is him. Because if you can make shots from the outside, it's gonna if you're gonna win into March, it's gonna look like it did last night. You're gonna make a lot of shots from the ins- outside. Lede's gonna have a very good uh, game on both ends of the floor, down in the paint, and then you're gonna give the ball to Seth Allen in what's gonna be a close game. Because uh, they're all going to be close, you figure, with Tech. And so uh, you feel pretty good if you're a Tech fan right now about what's going to happen when you do that, when you give that ball to Seth Allen. And having a guy like that, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, a big X factor going into these critical March games. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think there's still obviously uh, a team that room for improvement, vast sure. room for improvement. Oh, you, yeah. you look at some of the results they've had where uh, – just road games where they've been blown out. NC State. Uh, NC, yeah. NC State's a, a baffling one now. That, that was a while ago, but that was still just a, a real just non-competitive game. Virginia, when they were up there, they got blown out. UNC uh, beat them pretty bad in Chapel Hill. Uh, so I'm not going to say that this team is there, that they've arrived or anything like that. And certainly when they get away from Castle Coliseum, they're not quite as competitive of a team. And that, that'll be the case where they have to go into a neutral site if they're in the tournament. Uh, but... I, I think they just sort of have that knack that, uh, you know, a, a big deficit is not going to really be too daunting for them. They're right. not going to be like, oh, I can't come back from this because they have a mm-hmm. couple times. 
Uh, they've got some guys that make some big shots. They have some guys that when they're hitting threes, that's a really tough team to, to face. Now, I know it comes down to matchups a lot of the times, too. And if they come up against a team that just has a uh, real strong post game, that could be devastating. Well, because they, like North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, they I just mean, they just yeah. don't have anybody uh, to play in the post like that and really guard too much. But, uh, you know, with the, the kind of guards that they have and the shooting they have, I think they can counter that and at least be competitive in yeah. some of those games. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. and. Obviously, we'll be covering it all at Roanoke.com. Well, you saw the uh, right now the opening round projection in in Brooklyn. I think it's the eight nine game would be Virginia versus Virginia Tech. Cool. I don't know if it's still like that after last night's games, but I, I think I saw a tweet about that. So it, it's possible that they could play each other again uh, in, in the ACC tournament. It'd be a fascinating makes... matchup because in each of the last two years, the you know uh, the team that's been at home has won the game. Now they've been a lot closer in Castle than they have in, in Charlottesville, but it'll be very interesting to see what happened on a neutral floor there. So I guess that's about it, man. We got through a lot. We're going to get you a cough drop here. <laughs> this is a nice role reversal. Maybe it's, normally it's me that's hacking up along here. So Maybe it's this microphone. Who knows? We got, we've got to sanitize it or something <laughs> like this after the, after the podcast. All right. Well, we'll, we'll monitor what happens football-wise over the next week and if there's enough to talk about. We will. But until then, hope you enjoy the basketball and the other things that are going on. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarlane. We'll see you next time.